Good morning. Good to see everyone. Welcome those who are joining us by way of live stream today. And again, a shout out to Hannah Caldwell. We're praying for you. Appreciate Brad leading us in that prayer. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 8. We're going to get there in just a minute. And so it's always good to follow along in your translation, I think, just kind of parallel. The scripture will be up on the screen today. But anyway, last week I gave you, they did a survey of the most familiar verses of the Bible. Again, not sure who they surveyed. I don't think I ever get in on any of those surveys. But they said that John 3.16 was the most familiar, then Romans 3.23, Psalms 23, Jeremiah 29.11, Philippians 4.13, and then last week we were talking about Romans 8.28. And so I honestly thought we were just going to have a one and done, but... I just kind of got into that Romans 8, 28 and just kind of just kind of soaking in it, thinking about it. It's probably one of the most difficult areas to talk about. I'm certainly not an expert about it, but it is a verse that we use a lot to encourage other people. And maybe people have given us that verse as we've gone through various uh, times in our life. So let's look at it and let's just read it together. All right, so first of all, we know with great confidence. God wants us to know something with great confidence. And that word know means to know that you know that you know. That even though you don't feel it, you don't see it, it's something you can absolutely know. And what is it that God wants us to know? That God, who is deeply concerned about us, and we talked about last week, God knows the hairs on our head. The Bible says not a sparrow falls to the ground unless God is there. I mean, God cares about every possible detail of your life. And knowing that really should be an encouragement. Because sometimes, I'm just telling you, Satan wants you to doubt God's love. He wants you to doubt that God really cares about you. And so again, it says, we know with great confidence that God, who is deeply concerned about us, causes all things to work together as a plan for good. That working together, again, where we get the word synergy, God takes everything that comes our way in life, and he's using all that to literally make us more like Jesus. So we have to know that we know that God deeply cares about us and that nothing comes your way as a believer unless it's gone through God. And then it goes on to say this verse is intended for those who love God to those who are called according to his plan and purpose. So again, this is a promise to every believer. We can know that we know that we know that God cares about every detail of our life. And he literally is working every detail together for our good. The other two verses that we talked about last week that follow this, one of his purposes is to conform us into the image of Jesus. So everything that comes our way is to make us more like Jesus. And ultimately, one day we get to be glorified on the other side. That's, that's really the bonus of the whole thing is we get to have a spirit body like his, according to John. All right. So I just want us to think about in Isaiah 55, it says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are God's ways and God's thoughts above our ways and our thoughts. The Bible says in Proverbs 14, 12 over there, there's a way that seemeth right to man, but the end is destruction. So as we think about what's going on in our life, how many of you have ever gone through anything and you did not understand what you were going through? Like all the time. 
But again, to understand, if God were doing it the way I would do it, I would go again from mountaintop to mountaintop to mountaintop. Wouldn't that be a great plan? But again, his ways are higher. His thoughts are higher. And we just have to believe by faith when we don't know what's going on that God absolutely knows and cares about every detail of our life. And so again, I love the picture here kind of in the middle, the guy that's in the fog there, a little bit of a dark cloud. That's kind of looks like me a lot of times, not sure what's going on. But to know without a doubt that like the potter and the clay, that God is absolutely every day of your life is shaping you and forming you to be more like Jesus. And if we can know that, if we can trust the love of God, it really does help us to not get too stressed out in life, to know and trust our Heavenly Father. All right? So everything Satan means for evil, God uses for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I believe God, everything that Satan wants to do to hurt us, everything Satan wants to do to discourage us, God allows all that to happen for our good. I love this picture up here, by the way. It's my all-time favorite picture of Jesus. I'm not a big person on pictures of Jesus. You guys know that if you've been here very long. I'm not saying, I'm, I'm just saying the Bible doesn't really say what he looked like. But this is one picture of Jesus I never remember seeing growing up. I always thought God was just kind of sour and kind of angry all the time, wanting to zap people that did wrong. I mean, to see Jesus laughing, I just think to myself, that's God. That's God. I think God was a happy guy. I think Jesus had a lot of joy in life. I really do. So I like that picture. So I want to, first of all, give you three Old Testament examples and then some more modern-day examples of how when we're going through the suffering and the trials of life, to know that we know that we know that God deeply cares about us and that he's working everything together for our good and for his glory. So first of all, Joseph in the Old Testament. The story of Joseph, how many of you remember when he was young, God gave him a couple dreams? And one of the dreams God gave him was that his other 11 brothers and his mom and dad were going to bow down to him. Now, how many of you know he probably would have been better not to share that dream? I mean... They didn't receive it near as well as he received it. And so he shared it with them. And, I mean, and he, was, he was his dad's favorite. He got a coat of many colors. How many of you were not the favorite child? I mean, I'm the youngest. The youngest always gets abused. Can I get a witness? And you know, I mean, we've shared this. We talked about, I mean, the oldest child, I mean, the binky falls in the ground. They sanitize it five times before it goes back in. By the time I came along, my parents said, that dirt won't hurt him. Put it back in. How many of you know the oldest gets all the pictures? That's true. By the time I came along, I just got my brother's hand-me-down pictures. I, we looked enough alike. It's wholesome. But anyway, Joseph was the favorite. He got a coat of many colors. He told his, his brothers the dream that God gave him, which probably wasn't the smartest thing to do. But, but So one day, when he's younger, his father sends him up to Dothan up there to check on his brothers. Now, his brothers were so envious and so jealous. I mean, they were so angry at him. When he got up there, they were so mad, they literally were going to kill him. How many of you think that's serious? That's family turmoil. And so they, didn't, they, they finally threw him in a pit. They took off his coat of many colors. 
And they were going to kill him, and they decided, somebody gave the idea, instead of killing him, why don't we sell him as a slave? Can you imagine how brutal that must have been? Now, we don't know how old he was, maybe somewhere between 13, 17 years old. But they sold him as a slave to go down to Egypt. So God was going to take him from Dothan down to Egypt. Now, again, my plan would be to take a yacht. Can I give you some? Here's some of my plans on how I would go from there. I mean, wouldn't it be great if the angels carried you on cloud nine? That would be cool. If that didn't work, how about, again, God sending a yacht you know, floating down the Mediterranean Sea? That'd be kind of cool. Or maybe God could put us on a mountaintop and have a mountaintop experience and just kind of have a goosebump all the way down to Egypt. But you know, God who owns it all can certainly send a limo. I mean, I'm his child. I deserve a limo. But God gets him from Dothan down to Egypt. He sends him as a slave. Now, I'm just telling you, that would not be my plan. But God sent him down as a slave. You talk about a storm in life for a young man to be sent down to Egypt. How many of you know that God has a sense of humor and that his ways are higher than mine? His thoughts are higher than mine. I mean, if I were working this thing out, it would be from one good thing to another good thing. But God sent him down there as a slave. And he spent about, I don't know, 12, 13, 15 years, something like that. He went in and out of being good and bad. He spent a lot of time in jail, a lot of time in prison. I'm just telling you, if that were me, I would have a big pity party in jail. And then you know the story how Joseph finally, through God interpreting, allowing him to interpret dreams, he ends up being second in command to Pharaoh. And one day during the famine, his father sent his brothers down to get some grain. How many of you can have a little fun with the brothers? Of course, we would do it in Jesus' name, of course. How many of you have ever wanted to get even? You guys are godly people. You're so godly. So his brothers come down there and, and through the process, and he did mess with them just a little bit. I think he had a little bit of fun with them. But ultimately, when he revealed himself, he said this. It wasn't you who sent me here, but God. Whew. That's pretty amazing that he, he believed that through all that he went through, all that trauma, that literally God was orchestrating all that, and that it wasn't his brothers that sent him there, but it was God. I want to remind you something today, that where you are right now in your life, God has brought you here. Even though it's random, even though people have hated you, even though people have done bad things to you, I just want you to know that God is orchestrating all that together to make us more like Jesus and to ultimately one day that we would be glorified. And then there's Habakkuk. He's one of my favorite Old Testament prophets. Habakkuk, if you remember, he lived in a day when they were getting ready to go into the Babylonian captivity. And he was, man, he was crying out to God. In the first chapter, he says, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence and you will not save. How many of you, what would you think if God's plan for America was to allow us to be 70 years in captivity to a brutal terrorist organization? How many of you would be jumping up and down saying, man, I am really excited about that plan. 
And so Habakkuk is crying out, God, the most brutal people on the face of the earth. How in the world could you allow us to be in captivity for 70 years? And he is crying out to God. How many of you have ever pounded your fist on the doors of heaven and God was silent? I have. I'm going to tell you, when I don't understand what's going on, I began to cry out to God, God, you know what's going on down here? And then in chapter 2, Habakkuk has a vision of God. He has an encounter with God, and here's what God told him. The just shall live by faith. He wasn't going to take him out of that 70-year captivity, but in the middle of all that suffering, in the middle of all that storm, he said, the just shall live by by faith. I'll tell you how you survive the craziness of this world. You got to have some faith in God. You got to believe that he loves you. He cares about you and that every detail of your life he's weaving together for good. By the way, this verse is quoted three times in the New Testament. The just shall live by faith. And so what God taught Habakkuk is in the, in the, in the biggest storms of life, we've got to put our faith, we've got to believe that our God loves us, he cares about every detail of our life, and that he's weaving everything together for our good. And then he ends the book of Habakkuk by this way. Talk about a change of heart. The end of chapter 3, Habakkuk says this, Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, Though the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. How many of you would like to be there in life? I mean, I don't care what happens today. I'm going to rejoice in God. In the middle of that 70-year captivity, he was saying, if I literally get wiped out of everything, I'm going to put my joy in God. Now, can I just be honest with you? I don't live there every day. I find myself a little bit negative. I find myself complaining. But Habakkuk learned that in the middle of the, of the most horrible thing you could imagine, that he was going to put his joy in the Lord. And then there was Jeremiah. Same time frame as the people were going into that 70-year captivity. And this, by the way, was the, the fourth most popular verse. In case you weren't sure what it was, this is a verse shared to a lot of people to give them hope as they're going through difficult times. In Jeremiah 29, 11, God said to the people through Jeremiah, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. And so he's saying to the people as they're going through this 70-year captivity, by the most brutal people on the face of the earth, they literally just brutized people. I mean, they were so brutal. They were so evil. And yet God says, I know the thoughts that I have. I want to give you a hope and a future. And so he's trying to encourage them that even in the darkest, most difficult hour of suffering, that God has a plan for their life. I want to give you a, a few modern-day examples. Uh, back in Ecuador, uh, back in January 8, 1956, there were five missionary couples, young missionary couples, that had a heart for a people in South America. And so they literally moved up into that area and they were going to take the gospel to this uh, tribal people. And they literally were very brutal. No one had ever reached them. No one had ever made contact with them. And so these guys began 
to fly over that area and they had a bucket and they would put stuff in the bucket that the people in the village could use. And so they were trying to share the kindness of God, the love of God. And so over a period of months, these five guys, uh, Jim Elliott, Pete Fleming, Ed McCauley, Nate Saint, and Roger Uterin, they began to drop things over to this village and they slowly began to try to build a friendship and let these people know that they meant good, that they meant to share and to love and try to encourage them. Well, about, I don't know, several months into this, they decided to land on a sandbar. And they began to make some contact, some interaction. As a matter of fact, as the story goes, even one of the, of the people of the tribe even got in the plane, they took him up for a ride. But one day when they landed and they were beginning to build some relationships, all of a sudden some men of the village came out with spears and for whatever reason they decided these guys were not for our good and they got spears and they slaughtered all of them on the beach. The thing is that in the plane they had rifles. They could have got the rifles and killed these tribesmen. They had the power to kill them. But they literally allowed themselves to be slaughtered because they did not want to kill people who have not heard about Jesus. Now, I'm just telling you, I'm just telling you, for me, I would have considered the gun and maybe got a quick prayer before I shot. But they literally allowed these tribes people to slaughter them on the beach without raising a finger to defend themselves because they believed that God wanted to reach these people with the gospel. Left behind were five widows and about seven children. It's hard to imagine these five young couples who went to South America to try to give their life for this tribal group that literally all five of these men were slaughtered and butchered and amazingly enough, and Elizabeth Elliot, who's the second one from the right up there holding the little girl, her husband was Jim Elliot. She gives her testimony, and about two years later, they went back to that people group and somehow began to build those relationships. And crazy enough, God allowed them to build a bond, and through their love, eventually, many in this tribe came to know Jesus Christ. According to Elizabeth uh, Elliot, uh, two or three of the guys who slaughtered those five missionaries also came to know Jesus Christ. I mean, now again, I'm just telling you, if I were God, why wouldn't I let those five guys make that impact? Why would I let them build those relationships? Why did they have to be slaughtered? I don't know. But I'm just telling you, by the grace of God, these families went back and they began to minister and many of these tribes people came to know Jesus. As a matter of fact, according to Elizabeth Elliot, uh, this tribe who was beginning to receive Christ, they sent missionaries to other tribes. How crazy is that? They sent people out to other tribes, and according to her testimony, many of those people were killed. Even their own tribes people were killed when they went to other tribes to share Jesus. I've had the privilege, and by the way, they have a movie about this, The End of the Spear, if you ever get a chance to watch it. It's actually a story of these five missionaries who gave their life, uh, again, to try to share the gospel with these people. Uh, Jim Elliott, who was one of the five who died, said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. 
You know, when I read stories like that, and by the way, you can hear Elizabeth Elliot. If you get on uh, YouTube, you can just put her name in there. And I, I got to listen to some of her testimony. And I mean, when you hear from a woman who lost her husband, a woman who's been through all this, and by the way, she gives probably one of the most simple definitions of suffering I've ever heard. Her definition of suffering, I believe it's from her, is suffering, whether it's small or large, can all be summarized into this definition. Suffering is wanting something that you do not have or having something that you do not want. And so when you think about that, suffering is having something that you don't want to have or wanting something that you don't have. But when I hear her share her testimony and I think about stuff that I complain about, I think how small and how insignificant, but why God chose to allow those five men to be brutally killed, I do not understand. But I know that his love poured through that to ultimately reach this people group. And then there's Barbara Johnson. She's a, a lady speaker for the most part, but I got interested in her. And so Barbara Johnson has written a lot of different books. Uh, she died back in, I believe, 2007. But she had gone through a lot in her life. And God had given her an incredible gift to write books and, and to be a speaker. And she has a lot of humor. She's able to get up and make everybody laugh. And she has gone through so much in her life. Here's a few of the books that she's written, and I have the one there in the middle. Put a geranium in your hat and be happy. I like the one on the left that says, Mama, get the hammer. There's a fly on Papa's head. Can I get a witness from you wives out there, man? Can I hear I like the one on the right, splashes of joy in the cesspools of life. She was speaking one day, and she had been through, and we're going to talk about what all she's been through. She's been through so much. And a lady came up to her and said, Barbara, you are so lucky. You are so lucky to be able to travel around the world and just tell people your stories. You are so lucky. I'll tell you how lucky she is. In the beginning of her book, on, the, one of the, on chapter 1, it has this at the beginning. Lost dog, has three legs, blind and left eye, missing right ear, broken tail, heart trouble, answers to the name Lucky. How many of you can identify with Lucky. So they came up to her and said, you are so lucky. You are so lucky to be able to travel around and share your story. Well, here's what she had endured. She said in her book, one out of 500,000 families lost a son in the Vietnam War, and they were one of those 500,000. So they lost a son in the Vietnam War. And then she says, one out of 800 families have a child killed by a drunk driver. They were one of those families. They lost two of their four children. By the way, when Tim died, which is the second one that died, uh, people came up to her and they said, aren't you glad that Tim's in heaven? She said, well, I'm glad Tim's in heaven, but I want him here with me. And somebody else came up to her and said, aren't you thankful you still have two more sons? I'm going to say some of the things we say we don't think about. He said, I'm thankful I got two more sons, but they don't replace Tim. She had another son disappear for 11 years, changed his name, no contact. Her husband was in a severe auto accident. If you ever get a chance to listen, she'll say it 
much funnier than I will say it, but they, she literally came upon and they literally pronounced him like a vegetable. They, he would never, he was blind. He literally, they thought he would never be functional ever again. And so she filled out paperwork. She got money from the veterans organization because he was blind. He, she got money from various groups. She jumped through all those hoops. And guess what happened? God healed her husband. She got all this money because he was blind. Now all of a sudden he could see. And she had spent some of the money. And she called, she contacted everybody, and they said, just keep it. And think how crazy this is. They declared him legally blind, a vegetable, but God healed him. He goes back to the, the driver's office and says, I want to take a driver's test. He's been declared blind. How many of you would want to give him the test? And by the way, if you listen to the one testimony I listened to, he actually comes out and talks. He looks perfectly normal. But they went through a time, a severe time, where they thought literally he was going to be a vegetable the rest of his life. Developed, she developed adult onset diabetes. She says one out of 40 ladies developed that. She was one of those 40. She had a six-year battle with breast cancer, had a brain tumor. And that lady came up and said, you are so lucky. But yet through everything she's gone through, when you hear this woman get up and she just gets everybody laughing. She's able to take the heartaches of life and turn them into humor. And just, I tell you, when you hear her speak, I feel so humble that things that I complain about. But God has gifted her. I don't know how many books she's written. Uh, again, she passed away in 2007, but if you get a chance on YouTube to go listen to her, it's worth your time. It's good stuff. But again, this lady said, you are so lucky. A pastor came over when their second son died, which was Tim, uh, killed by a drunk driver. And can I tell you, even pastors say some dumb things. The pastor, their pastor, who was with them when the first son died in Vietnam, when the second son died, the pastor came over and said this to Barb. I'm not a bit worried about you because you're a pro at this. That's sad. I'm going to tell you, that's sad. Can I tell you, nobody becomes a pro at losing children. But we don't always engage the brain when we talk. But she talked about how difficult that was when her pastor said that to her. You're a pro at this. She said this, and I, I think it's good. When grief is the freshest, your words should be the fewest. I think that's good, good stuff. You know, when someone is really crushed, when someone's really suffering, don't try to explain it. Don't try to even quote a lot of verses. The best, my opinion is just go sit with them. Just love on them. Because sometimes we don't know the depth of someone's suffering. She wrote this in her book, and that's in this book here. Pain is inevitable, but misery is optional. That's good. I mean, everything she's been through, she has a positive outlook, and God has given her an incredible gift of humor. And that's, that's only God that can do that. She says, life isn't always what you want, but it's what you got. How many of you ever come on Sunday and say, man, I wish I could be like them? They seem like they got her all together. I'll just go ahead and tell you, there ain't anybody here that's got it all together. There's not a person here that's not going through some storms, some struggles. 
And we need to learn to have a little bit of compassion. That's why Romans 8 has really meant so much to me the last couple of weeks, because I realize I've got to know that I know that I know that God deeply cares about me and that literally everything that comes my way, even though I don't see it, feel it, I've got to trust that he's using everything together for my good. It's hard. I wish I could preach we're going to go from mountain to mountain to mountain. That's what I would do. That's how I would have designed it. And there's some preaching out there that says life is like a bubble. It's always going to be good stuff. I'm going to tell you, that's not biblical. Of the 12 apostles, only one perhaps died a natural death. The rest were martyred. How do you think it ended for Jesus, the Son of God? Not well on this side. I'm just telling you that somehow, again, his ways are so much higher than mine, I have to submit, God, even though I don't understand, I'm going to trust you and know that you love me. She said this about overcoming grief, three T words. A person needs to have some tears, they need somebody that they can talk with, and they need time. And that really is true, so it, it does take time. The last one I want to talk about is Johnny Erickson Tata, probably more familiar to many. In 1967, she had just graduated high school. How many of you remember when you just graduated high school? She had her bags packed to go to college. She was going to be a physical therapist. That's what she was going to go to school for, be a physical therapist. And so when she went out with her sister, they went out to swim, and there was a dock out from the, out from the bank there. She went out on that dock, and she dove in, and when she did, she hit the bottom, and it, it broke her neck. The fourth vertebrae was snapped. So she went from a 17-year-old full of life, her family was very athletic, to all of a sudden... She became a quadriplegic. So here's a picture of her when she was a senior getting ready to go to college. She became that accident, that diving accident in 1967. She became a quadriplegic. She struggled. She really fought with depression. How many of you could understand that? She really battled with depression. And uh, later she became an artist, a vocalist, a radio host, author of 17 books, and an advocate for the disabled around the world. But she shared as she went to physical therapy, how, how crazy she was going to be a physical therapist. But then all of a sudden, she needed a physical therapist. And one of the first things she said when they wheeled her down there, she had no use of her arms or legs, and that the, the therapist put a pencil in her mouth and was trying to teach her how to draw, how to write with her mouth, and she <laughs> spit it out. She was a little bitter. And then she said they brought in another guy who was worse off than her, who was also a quadriplegic, but didn't have even the movement she had. And they put a pencil in his mouth, told him the same exact thing. And she said, I know he's going to spit it out. But he didn't. He tried the best he could to draw on that paper. And she said, when I saw that guy who was worse off than I was trying to draw, that encouraged her. She said this as she was lying there, and she had gone to church some, but she wasn't a follower of Jesus. But she said this as she was lying there as a 17-year-old, God, if I can't die, show me how to live. That's a pretty good prayer. By the way, she said as she shared her own story, she couldn't even commit suicide. She had no hands, had no legs. She was just laying there. She was so dependent. I mean, God broke her down. One of the first verses someone shared with her, according to her own testimony, is 1 Thessalonians 5.18. And everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. How many of you think that's a tough verse to give somebody 
who just went through that. Now, I think they meant well, but sometimes we've got to really slow down and just think about how people are suffering. The second verse somebody gave them, and there's a picture of her lying. For I know the thoughts, and this was the number four most familiar verse or famous verse. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. But again, that's a hard one to receive when your whole world has changed. But according to her, she said this, The weaker I became, the harder I had to lean on God. But the harder I leaned on Him, the stronger I discovered Him to be. Now, when I heard her testimony, she had been a quadriplegic for 37 years. And she said as she was sharing her testimony, some people think somehow I have mastered being a quadriplegic, that somehow I have mastered suffering. But she said, every day I get up, I have to die to self. I have to yield to God. It doesn't get necessarily easier in the flesh. I encourage you to get on and listen to the testimonies of these people. It just really humbles you to know everything they've gone through and they give God the glory. It really is crazy. So she said, God is more concerned with conforming me to the likeness of his son than leaving me in my comfort zone. This is a few of the pictures that she's painted. She's become very famous now, an incredible artist, and she does it all with her mouth, which is really just amazing that she was able to do that. Now, I want to say I've heard of PTSD a lot, and that's post-traumatic stress disorder. Any kind of a major trauma that we go through, we sometimes have some struggle. But I've never heard until this week, I have never heard of PTG. I've never heard of it. Has anybody here ever heard of PTG? And so I started Google looking up, trying to find some stuff on it. PTG is post-traumatic growth. And here's what they've discovered. People have gone through a traumatic time in life. And even though it's devastating, it's difficult, here's what they've discovered. That two-thirds of the people, survivors, experience growth. That even in the deepest, darkest, most traumatic moment, somehow they grow from it. God had that in mind when he again sees things from a different perspective. PTG, according to them, is a positive psychological change experienced as a result of adversity and other challenges in order to rise to a higher level of functioning. I'm just telling you, and I, I mean, it sounds almost, I mean, it's hard to preach about because I want to preach on good stuff and happy stuff, and this really is good stuff, but it's hard stuff. The fact that you're here today tells me that you're hanging on to your love for God. Can I tell you, there's not a person sitting here that could not have given up a long time ago with everything you've gone through. But the fact that you're still here today, the fact that you're watching online, tells me that you're hanging on to the love of God. That's why, by the way, when we have a testimony Sunday, whenever we have a testimony Sunday, I cannot tell you how many people connect because when people tell their journey, their life story, we all just seem to connect with suffering. The last person I want to talk about today is you. I wish we had time for every person to get up and share their story. There's not a person here that has not been through the storm. 
Romans 28 is such an incredible gift if we can receive it. That we can know that we know that we know that God cares deeply about us. And that everything is working together for our good. That's an incredible gift. Not to find God on the mountaintop but to find God in the middle of the storm, in the middle of the suffering, to somehow experience that love. So what I want us to do, as I want us all to stand for just a minute, I'm going to ask if David's here to come up. Those who are watching by way of stream, just right where you are, just to kind of build an altar. I know that probably, I'm just being honest, I'm going to just go on a limb and say 100% of all of us here today, 100% of everybody that's watching, just needs the love of God, just needs God to reach down and just love on you today. I just want you to take a moment, and maybe you're here, maybe you're watching, and maybe you just feel a tug in your heart, and maybe today, maybe today for the first time in your life, you just need to open up your heart and receive Christ. I believe today could be the greatest day of your life just to receive that gift of eternal life. But I believe there are a lot of believers here today that are hurting. They've been bruised. They've been battered. And you just need to feel God reach down and wrap his arms around you and just love on you. If you're here today, you just need someone to pray with you or pray for you. You can slip out and come. We just want to take just a moment. Or if you're watching by way of stream, I just pray that right where you are, you'll just feel God reach down and just love on you and remind you of his love. Matter of fact, I had so many examples, I had to cut my sermon in half. You only got half of it. I realized, it was last night, last night about 10, 11 o'clock at night, I realized I cannot get all this in. I'm of your thankful I cut it off. I cut it in half. I'm going to give you the other half in a couple weeks. Next week is Upward Sunday, so we're going to do something different. Two weeks from today, we're going to finish this second part. How many of you will remember in two weeks? It's always good to nod, even if you won't. Hey, I love you guys. You know, as a church, over the years, say, well, how do we draw close together? You know, when you walk the quarters of hospitals with people, when you sit with families at a time of a loss, you know, over the years, God just weaves our lives together in such an incredible way. And I'm thankful that people can watch at home or, or listen. But, you know, nothing beats being here and just that interaction. I think that's how God designed it. So I love you guys. I just want to encourage you. If you get a chance to go hear some of these testimonies online, I think it will encourage you. I'm so thankful for God's plan. So I want to pray for you. We're going to close out with a song today. Love you guys. And uh, take just a minute and pray for those around you. Would you just ask God to meet the needs of those who are around you today? Father, in Jesus' name, I just pray you'd reach down, wrap your arms around each of your children. Father, those who are here, those who are watching by way of stream. Father, I'm not asking you to take us out of any situation, but God, in the middle of the craziness of life, we want to discover your strength. We want to experience your love. 
Father, I just speak peace and blessing, Father, to each one that's here. I pray that your love would just spill out everywhere we go. And that, Father, we can love on those who are hurting all around us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.